the Resilient Pedagogy Podcast with your host, Travis Thurston. On this episode, we discuss creating adaptable courses with authors from Resilient Pedagogy. This is the space where we discuss practical teaching strategies to overcome distance, disruption, and distraction. We also explore how approaching course design, classroom communities, and pedagogies of care can humanize our learning environments. Our guests today are Kosa Popovich, is assistant professor of physics and optical engineering at the Royals Holman Institute of Technology. He received his doctorate from the University of Virginia. He's passionate about the role fundamental STEM courses play in engineering education and enjoys teaching introductory physics, nuclear physics, and medical imaging courses. Eric Reyes is an associate professor at Rose Holman Institute of Technology uh, within the Department of Mathematics. He's a statistician and he enjoys collaborating with medical students within the rural health track at IU School of Medicine in Terre Haute and undergraduate biology majors at Rose Holman. And KCD is the Associate Dean of Learning and Technology and a professor of biomedical engineering at Rose Holman Institute of Technology. She currently teaches engineering design and regulatory affairs courses. Making academic change happen is her vocation. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to discussing ideas from your chapter uh, today. But before we get started, uh, I want to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. As an emerging term, resilient pedagogy uh, has been defined in a number of different ways, and it continues to be applied in varying contexts. So what does resilient pedagogy mean to you? I would love to jump in and tell you that I think of resilient pedagogy as pedagogy that lets you very quickly recognize when something's not going quite right or not as well as you'd like it to, uh, kind of rumble with that fact very quickly and make some intentional choices um, about changes that you're going to make, and then kind of rewrite the end of that story to be in the next chapter or the next part of your course. To me, uh, resilient pedagogy means that I can focus on student learning and what my role is in that process. Um, and not necessarily completely irregardless of the events around us, I can uh, make sure that this process is not disturbed by the disruption that may happen that are seeking to slow down or negate our uh, learning within any courses we do. I think playing off what Costa said, disruptions are inevitable. And I think for me, having resilient pedagogy means that I'm not going to survive those, but I'm going to thrive through those disruptions. Uh, no matter what comes at me, I'm going to be able to adjust and my students are going to flourish in that setting. That's what I'd really love to see happen. Yeah, I love those ideas. That, that, idea, of, uh, that idea of flexibility definitely comes out in your, in your ideas there. And I really like how, how we, we're bringing those, those student perspectives, considering how this is impacting our students. And also, Eric, I like how you added uh, not just surviving, right? We're, we're finding ways to be flexible and, and thriving through these disruptions and changes. Oh, I love that. So my first question, uh, really, I want to highlight um, several ideas from your chapter that stood out to me. But when disruptions occurred in early 2020, there was a lapse 
in, in quality educational experiences that many of us felt from all sorts of contributing factors. Uh, and, and you point specifically to some design factors that can allow for this uh, flexibility that we were talking about in, in course offerings. So I'm interested to discuss how do you identify uh, critical aspects of courses while also planning for flexibility? That is a great question. And I think Eric might be the best one to, to toss that one too in terms of keeping, keeping what's critical. I remember when we first started this process um, and I had a lot of colleagues asking, well, I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to move this thing that I'm used to doing in person every day to an online setting. And by identifying what's really important, you're only spending time on that mental exercise with the things that are most critical to your class. So for me, one of the examples was I realized that I love collecting data in class as a statistician. And that's really fun and it's games and it's exciting. And I was spending a lot of time trying to think about how to transition that to an online setting when there were other activities that were much more fundamental to the course. And so by talking about like the act of discussing data design, I didn't need to collect the data to have that discussion. And by focusing on something that was really gonna drive me to my end goal, then that was much easier and much more worth my effort to figure out how to transition that into an online setting. Yeah, I really like that. Um, not just thinking about like the time that we spend in class, but really thinking about what's what's most important. What are the most important aspects? I like I like that that distinction. That's one reason why we started our program with asking people to really focus on the critical learning objectives of their course. And I realized that in some fields um, of academia, learning objectives are looked down on. <clears throat> for, for some good reasons um, um, that they might bias the students and that the journey of learning is the student's experience. We don't want to define that. But in STEM fields, um, we have to keep an eye on the fact that our students need to be prepared to take professional licensure exams. And so really keying in on what the critical objectives are and what must be met, I think is, a, is as Eric was talking about, a key step in deciding what else you can flex. So you mentioned um, some of your programming so one of the ways you responded uh, in summer 2020 was to create an interdisciplinary faculty-led summer program. Uh, can you tell our listeners about how you implemented the, the creating adaptable courses training and, and maybe some, what are some of the outcomes? Well, I can give the background and then maybe Costa can talk to some of the faculty-led portions of it. Um, we, we realized that... Um, we realized that we needed to do better. We did our best in the spring, but we had some time to prepare for the fall. And we decided that instead of hoping disruptions wouldn't happen, we would deliberately plan for them and embrace them to the best that we could, make the most of the opportunity. So we received permission from our provost to put together a training program through the summer. Our learning and technology staff uh, worked behind the scenes to make that happen. And we identified a group of critical educators um, in different disciplines throughout the Institute um, who could act as not just uh, peer guides as we developed content, but moderators and mentors and motivators as we moved through the content. And I will say that having that group of faculty um, who were familiar with the microcultures of the different departments, having them as leaders of this team were absolutely critical to the success of our program. Costa, what do you think? 
So the, to start with, I would say that everything that happened during summer of 2020 is a blur for I think reasons that uh, all of us are uh, familiar with. Um, but from what I remember during that time, um, I remember uh, that um, working with this interdisciplinary team really helped put a lot of different course design approaches in perspective, um, I think for all of us uh, in a way. So during the, the, the first portion of this process, which was uh, six, core, uh, six uh, module design in our learning management system, I believe that over 70% of our faculty went through that process, which started with a discussion and exercises on backward design of our courses. And um, we already spoke a little of that moments ago in that um, that is not necessarily natural to many educators, given that pedagogy in itself is not is rarely a component of graduate work. So having many of our colleagues go through that process for the first time, I think it was very revealing to, to them and, and myself, for example, um, in disciplines like physics, I think oftentimes we find ourselves running into a question of, hey, which book are you using for this course and which chapters are you covering? And the discussion of learning objectives necessarily is not natural. So, um, so having uh, this great resource, uh, first of all, the, the mentor group that helped me see a lot of these things uh, and then be able to take those lessons and um, try to translate them and transfer them to my microculture, which all of us did um, within our um, microcultures, um, was, uh, was, I think, one of, the, one of the best parts of that, of that summer. Uh, work and then everything else just flowed from there. I thought one of the cool parts about our program was that we all felt like we were going through it together, whether we were part of developing it as a peer mentor or whether a colleague going just starting out from fresh going into the program. It wasn't like an outside entity came in and told us how to be better or do something different. We were in it together. Every one of us was developing a course alongside those that were taking it for the first time. And so we could all experience the same things and the same challenges. So being able to lean on each other was really, really, I thought, a, a cool feature of the summer program for us. Oh, my gosh. Remember the Teams conversations we had? Like thousands of, literally thousands of comments in a Teams conversation within, within a week or two. Um, it was hard to keep up with sometimes, but but people really were very generous about what they had to say. They, they asked questions openly um, with vulnerability and people people engaged in a very deep way. I was I was I was really humbled by our colleagues and their approach to that. That's great. I mean, seventy percent of faculty <laughs> participating is is uh, an impressive number in and of itself. But also creating a space where people feel comfortable to ask those questions. Um, and to engage with each other and, and creating a supportive atmosphere um, is something that's really, really admirable. What, what also stands out to you um, after you went through that process of some of uh, the important outcomes uh, in your actual courses or, or in your teaching? For me, I think uh, the benefits of designing with somebody I have often designed my courses on my own. I did my own thing. I could be completely individual. 
But this summer, we because we were so many were doing it together. I often ask questions of my my colleagues and my peers teaching similar courses of how did you handle this? What would you think about this? Um, even though you're not teaching this particular class, I am. Does that feel right to you? What do you think? And I got some really great ideas that I wouldn't otherwise have received. And so the importance of just bouncing ideas off of somebody during the design is something I hope to continue to do each term as I design new courses. Uh, going back to that uh, uh, point that uh, I believe KCD made a little while ago that uh, we were all in this together. Um, we were in a situation where several of us were going to teach multiple courses throughout the quarter, throughout the year, um, and kind of flip back and forth depending on uh, just course loads and such. And um, we ended up, I think, in in many places, splitting up some of the work so that not everyone would necessarily have to focus on all the courses. And that shared resource and, and knowledge uh, that others were working to help you as you were working to help them make it through the next year, which carried and still carries so much uncertainty in terms of um, how things are uh, carried out um, in the academic setting uh, was the one thing that really helped, um, helped me feel more comfortable with um, approaching and planning for uh, the, the upcoming academic year. For me, that's one of my favorite aspects um, when you get interdisciplinary groups together is that you can, you can get, you can get content out of the way um, and, and really talk about some of those, uh, those teaching, those teaching, greater teaching concepts and, and thinking about how we're reaching our students, how we're supporting them, things like that. And so Kosa, you mentioned this idea of, of embracing change. And I know uh, many of us have had to roll with change, whether we really wanted to or not. <laughs> and, you know, whether that's the way that we, we plan and teach our classes or even the technology tools uh, that we've adopted to communicate with each other. What advice uh, would you all give about embracing and planning for uncertainty uh, rather than maybe fighting against it? Well, I would say that that our, I think our natural instinct is to, to, to fight change and fight the fact that we may have to change things uh, on the fly. So approaching the, given that we were expecting potential for uncertainty and change, I think it was a little easier to, to approach knowing that this will be uncomfortable during the year if we had to fight it um, and, uh, and being okay with the fact that you know, if we do some legwork now, we will um, be able to be less stressed out during the quarter while delivering um, quality courses and quality experiences for our students was um, was the, the, the main main reason that uh, it, it helped us, I think, go through um, that process more easily. Casey, what was it you said this summer, like, something along the lines of we can't control what's going to happen, but we can control how we respond to it. I felt like that became a, a real driver for me personally. That's exactly right. We, when we're, when circumstances are out of our control, one of the things that we can do to help ourselves sort of regain equilibrium is find something that we can control and uh, planning for the prospect of having to go completely remote or have students in quarantine or isolation at a moment's notice was 
was a way that I think a lot of us really sort of regained our footing this summer and uh, we're in a better space um, heading into the fall. That's, that's right. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I love that perspective. Thinking about the things that we that we do have control over, right? And making the the adjustments that that we can make, that we that are within our realm. Yeah, I like that. My last question today, um, I want to kind of shift focus, looking forward. Uh, there were many things that all of us did in in reaction to the disruptions of 2020 and and preparing for what came afterwards, and uh, there were several changes that we made in our own practice. I'm, I'm hoping that we don't all kind of fall into this trap of just kind of going back to the way we did things before pre-pandemic. Uh, so, so in that light, looking forward, what are some things uh, that you changed in your own practice uh, that you want to continue doing moving forward? I can answer a little bit in terms of uh, trends I've observed over the rest of this year from our school and then myself. So in terms of uh, faculty support and learning and technology, we've seen the sophistication level of the questions that we receive and the request for assistance. The sophistication level has risen tremendously from what it was pre-pandemic. And we've also seen increased use of our learning management system and some of our other online tools in hybrid and face-to-face courses. And I think that's a positive thing overall. I think faculty are finding utility in these tools in ways that maybe they had not considered before. And I'm I'm completely a fan of, of expanding faculty toolboxes to achieve the objectives they want. So one thing that I plan to continue um, in my courses is has nothing to do really with technologies, but I was very aware during the pandemic that a lot of my students were having a really rough time. I I taught first year students this past year and, and it was really rough for them. And it required a lot of compassion and a lot of firmness um, in equal measures to help them get through some of those courses. So I plan to continue talking about resilience and incorporating more acknowledgement of when things are rough, how do we move forward in my courses, most especially for those first-year students. Academic resilience is going to be something that I do more research on as a scholar and then continue to incorporate in my courses. I learned personally that I think I am better in written environments sometimes with students than I am even in face-to-face. Having some time to reflect on an answer to a tough question and respond in text I often feel like I'm getting that personal engagement better than I would in person. And so that's something I don't think I would have realized had I not tried to embrace some of the the challenges we had over the last year. So as a a larger mindset, I'm hoping moving forward that when I do come up to some challenges in my teaching, that I take a step back and figure out what I can learn from that to improve in general moving forward, instead of just thinking, I just got to get through this and then I'll get back to as long as I keep that mindset of I can always improve from this experience, who knows what I'll learn in the future. To me, a, a question of what to do going forward is, is, a, is an interesting one given how strong of a phenomenon inertia is. We are in the middle of our last academic quarter for this year. And at this moment, <laughs> all I can think of is just Let's go. I'm sorry. The physicist wants to talk about how strong inertia is. I just have to say that. Okay, that's good. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, and I just, at this moment, I'm just moving until an external force stops me. Um, so I think it will take some time this summer to really reflect on what this year has been. And I try to impart that on my students quite often. Every time you go through a major event, uh, be it exam or an entire academic year of, of classes, um, both from the learning and the teaching perspective, um, sit back and, and think what's happened and, and then chart your path forward. So for me personally, I, I'm aware that I have a wealth of new resources and approaches that I will most certainly use going forward, uh, even though, at least in our case, we are um, fairly certain that we are going back to full-time face-to-face um, instruction in the fall. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, but one thing that I think will stick with me uh, most from this experience is that anytime I approach a new course, um, I will sit back and go through the backward design process first. And I think that will help uh, all of my courses be a tad bit more resilient uh, compared to what I would have done in the past. Thank you much, so much, you three, uh, for taking the time today. Uh, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Travis. And thanks for listening. Goodbye, everybody.